this morning, I want to talk to you about why the church exists. One of my roles as the intentional interim pastor is to help the church be prepared for her next pastor. Right? You agree with that? Okay. Then how do you prepare for something like that? Uh, You've been through a a longer period of time without a pastor in the recent past, and then you had a, a pastor who was here for a relatively short period of time, and now we're kind of looking ahead and say, God, what are you trying to tell us, and what do we really need to learn? And so the Lord willing, over the next few weeks, going through those first six chapters of the book of Acts, I want to talk to you about the church, the nature of the church, the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, how the church operates, how the church should be organized. And the purpose is not to tell you something new because many of you who've been in the church for a long time have heard this message, you've been a part of this message before, but to kind of renew the message in your heart, to kind of renew your vision, your goal, your hope, if you will, for why the church exists. And so today we're going to start in the book of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and we're going to come right down to the purpose of the church. And I'm sure that many of you are familiar with Acts 1.8. It's one of those statements of the Great Commission of Jesus. He tells us this is why the church exists. Here are the marching orders of the church. Uh, But he gives us some other things before that that kind of leads us up to that Great Commission. Uh, Now, before we get really into the reading of Scripture, I had a note in my bulletin in the office this morning. said, please announce Sarah Milton is in St. Francis Hospital room 305, so you will know that, be able to pray for Sarah and uh, others that uh, have needs. And uh, by the way, uh, I don't know how you do your connection cards except you take them up on Sunday, but if you have a prayer request, something you'd like for the staff of the church to pray with you about or something you'd like me to pray with you about, write it on that little card and uh, make sure it gets in the offering plate or you can drop it in the offering plate after the service. And I promise you, we will pray for you and we'll pray for your request, okay? Is that good enough? Okay. So Acts 1, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 and going through verse 8. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen. This is God's word. Pray with me, if you will. Our Father, we come today to ask your blessing on the reading and the preaching of your word. We thank you for the blessing we have received already by being amidst this worshiping congregation. Thank you for the beauty of music, dear Lord, and letting us participate in that. 
It makes us think of your glory, of how majestic, how wonderful, how mighty, how powerful you really are. And Lord, it helps us to see ourselves as but humans in need of your grace and guidance every day. Lord, speak to us now during this time. Let your Holy Spirit infuse us with a new zeal for the work of the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The man had been to church most all of his life, and every Sunday, almost without exception, for decades, he had attended church every single Sunday. And so it was quite a surprise to his wife when he woke up one Sunday morning, and instead of getting out of bed and taking a shower and shaving and getting ready for church, he just laid in the bed. His wife came along and said, honey, are you sick? He said, no, I'm not sick. She said, well, what are you doing laying in the bed? You should be getting ready for church. He said, I'm not going to church today. She said, what? She was really surprised. You're not going to church today? He said, nope, I'm not going to church today. I decided I'm not going to go today. And she said, well, dear, you always go to church. He said, I know I always go, but I'm not going to go to church today. She said, well, you've got to go to church. He said, well, I don't have to go. She said, yeah, you do. He said, well, I'm not going. She said, well, give me some good reasons why you're not going. He said, well, the first thing is that church, those people are always talking about me. And another reason is a lot of those people don't like me. And besides, I don't like them either. So I'm not going. She said, well, you've got to go. He said, well, you give me some good reasons why I should go. He said, well, not everybody at that church dislikes you. I mean, there are some people who really like you, and not everybody talks about you in that church. And besides, you're the pastor. You have to go to church today. <laughs> I'm not sure that I ever wake up on Sunday morning without a desire to go to church, but sometimes don't we struggle with that a little bit? Sometimes we wonder, is it really worth getting up and getting on some presentable clothes? Is it worth, you know, taking this time out of a Sunday morning when I could be leisurely reading the newspaper, I could go to the beach or out to the lake, or I could play golf or go fishing or any number of pursuits? Sometimes we struggle with that, and I think part of our struggle is we kind of forget a little bit about why the church exists in the first place. We kind of forget what the purpose of something is. Let me give you a little illustration of that. I have in my pocket this little uh, device. It's, it's black, as you can tell. It has some gold-like markings. I don't think it's real gold. Uh, this device actually has my initials on it. I'm, I'm sure you can't see that. But this device was invented and created, was manufactured for one purpose, to write. Did you know that? This is called a pen. You twist the barrel of this instrument and a little ballpoint thing comes out and it's got ink in it and I can put it to paper and it writes. Now, what happens when this stops writing? You throw it away, can't you? Or you could buy a refill, I guess. But do you realize this pen is really not good for anything else but writing? It's not heavy enough to be a paperweight. I mean, any little wind would blow it away. It's not good as a weapon. 
Unless you're a convict in prison, maybe you could stab somebody with this, but it's really not designed for that. It's designed for a purpose, and within its purpose, it does an excellent job. Uh, I have another illustration for you this morning. I like illustrations, don't y'all? We learn sometimes better by seeing than hearing. Uh, y'all know what this is? These are reading glasses. Uh, I was at Highland Park Church when I first discovered my arms were no longer long enough for me to read the newspaper. And uh, I went to the eye doctor thinking something was bad wrong, and, and she said, you need to get some arm extenders. I said, what? No, no, she said, you need to get some reading glasses. So these glasses help me to read something that's, uh, you know, pretty close up. Not good for distance, but it's good for reading. And if for some reason my eyes change or these glasses get all scratched up, the purpose of them will be thwarted and they'll be good for what? Good for nothing. So it's important for us, not only with glasses and pens, to ask the question, what's the purpose of this thing? What is the purpose of the church? And I believe as clearly as anywhere else in Scripture in this passage we read, we have a statement about the purpose of the church. But notice with me, if you have the sermon notes out in your bulletin, notice with me a couple things that come along before Jesus states the purpose of the church in verse 8. In verses 3, 4, and 5, Jesus teaches his disciples about some things that are really important. And through the inspired message of God's author, uh, the brother Luke wrote this book, and he said that we're first of all to understand the importance of the resurrection. Notice how he puts that in. How Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension showing himself to many people by convincing proofs. Wouldn't it be nice if we could go back historically and see some of those events? We're not privy to many of them because most of them aren't recorded, but for a 40-day period, Jesus was revealing himself. He was showing himself alive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 on one occasion, there were at least 500 people who publicly, personally witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. That is, they saw him in a post-resurrection appearance so that they would be certain that he was risen from the dead. Now, let me say this to you. You won't hear this in moderate to liberal churches, but the entirety of Christianity, the entirety of the church, depends on this one truth, that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. That's one of the great arguments of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. And Paul says, in effect, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then our religion is foolish and you're wasting your time practicing Christianity. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then nobody rises from the dead. And if nobody rises from the dead, we are hopeless in this world. And so Jesus reminds his disciples that the resurrection is of the utmost importance and he wanted to make sure that there were eyewitnesses, not just the 12, but many, many eyewitnesses who saw Jesus so nobody could say he didn't rise from the dead. Now, I know there are people today who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's their privilege. This is America. You can believe whatever you want to believe, even if you're wrong. You can believe to your own death if you want to. But the historic proof is that Jesus is alive, that he rose, and that he ascended to the Father. And the testimony is, one day, he's coming back. Amen? 
That's, that's the message that Jesus gave to his disciples. Look at the second thing. He said, remember, there is a spiritual baptism coming. He said, John the Baptist told you that he baptized with water for repentance, but I'm telling you that I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, at that time, I'm quite certain the disciples didn't know what it meant to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I'm also quite certain that that's one of the controversies in the church today. There are some brothers and sisters in the faith who believe that it means jumping very high in the sky and waving your arms and shouting and speaking in unintelligible utterances, whatever that may be. But according to Scripture, when that happened, and we'll look at that according to Lord willing next week in the message in Acts 2, it was not an an unorganized or disorganized display of some special utterance, but it was a very orderly and powerful situation. The disciples didn't know what was going to happen. They just knew that Jesus promised, I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And so he was saying to them, you've got to wait till that time comes. Then he said in verse uh, 5, there will be a promise of fulfillment, and you've got to wait on it till it happens. In other words, don't go out trying to start the mission that I'm giving you. Don't go out and try to have a church. Don't go out and try to do marvelous or miraculous things. But you wait till the Spirit comes. Wait for this baptism. Wait for this inauguration, or as I like to call it, wait for the birthday of the church. And then you will be my witnesses. And you will go all over the place sharing the gospel. So Jesus wanted them to know these things. The resurrection is real There's going to be a baptism. Wait for the baptism. Now, in verses 6 and 7, we see that the disciples have a question on their minds. Look at verse 6, and here's what they said. Lord, is now the time when you're going to restore Israel? Is now the time when you're going to make all these things happen that the prophets foretold back in the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and all those good guys in the background? Now, Jesus had a little problem with that. You see, from the disciples' point of view, for three and a half years or so when they were walking with Jesus, this was the culmination, or it would be the culmination, of his earthly ministry. Jewish people for centuries, literally centuries, had been looking for a Messiah who would be a political deliverer. He would raise an army, and he would defeat the Romans the most powerful force in the world up to that time in history. He would raise an army that would drive them out of Palestine and it would reinstall Jesus himself as the king of the Jews, a descendant of David. He would then establish the temple worship again as it had been under David and Solomon. He would then extend the kingdom on earth just like it had been under David and Solomon. He would make Israel a prominent nation once again. He would bring prosperity to the people. And it would be just a golden age of Judaism. And the disciples knew, by the way, hey, uh, we're going to be sitting with him on his throne. We're going to be his right-hand men. And we're going to have power and privilege and prestige. That's what they wanted to know. And you see, the problem with that was they didn't have the spiritual sense to know better. And so they just put their feet where their mouth should be and exposed their own thinking. And here's the way they thought. And I might say it's kind of like what some people in churches think today. They were looking for an earthly kingdom instead of a heavenly kingdom. You know, Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. You remember the Lord's Prayer? 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the first request? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And yet I find that a lot of people in their prayers are so interested in getting my kingdom to come, they spend very little time on thy kingdom to come. Lord, I want this, I want that. Help us here and help us there. And the disciples wanted so much to see the physical kingdom on earth rather than the spiritual kingdom on earth. They wanted the showings of power. They wanted a palace. They wanted a mighty army. They wanted miracles. They wanted all the stuff that humans normally think of when they think of a kingdom. Now, I'm not particularly opposed to kings and kingdoms and queens and that kind of thing. In fact, I think it would be quite interesting to live in England and and to be a British subject and to be a part of the pomp and circumstance of the Queen of England. I mean, it's really often on our news pages, especially if you follow the news on the internet, how often this new royal couple are in the news. And it's not likely that he will ever inherit the throne. It's more likely that his brother or one of his brother's children will. But people love watching the royalty because there's something majestic and grand about this earthly setting of kings and kingdom. Something. According to the scripture, there's nothing more grand, more glorious than the kingdom of God. Which is not so much bound to the physical world, but is physical, but also the spiritual world. And it will last forever and ever. If you go into the great St. Paul's Cathedral in London, you will see the graves of many of the monarchs of England past. And one day, Queen Elizabeth will be buried there when she dies, and she will no longer be king, and she will not be recognized in heaven as a queen, only as a person who died, whether with Jesus or without Jesus. But those who seek after the kingdom of God, those who seek after the will of God for their lives in this world, will have all eternity to enjoy the blessing, the grandeur, the glory of God. And so here were these disciples thinking only of the earthly kingdom. And here we have a lot of people, and I might say probably some Baptists. Would you allow me to say that? They're probably the ones that go to the 830 service, right? (laughs) Who are only thinking of an earthly kingdom. I want to make as much money as I can. I want to get as much stuff as I can. I want to have the nicest things that I can. I want to enjoy life as much as I can because I know I'm getting older and I'm going to die one day and I can't do this anymore. That's earthly kingdom thinking. Now, God is not a cosmic killjoy. God is not one who says you never can have fun, you never can have stuff. Life is just dull and joyless. But at the same time, it's a matter of priorities, isn't it? Matthew 6, says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what will happen? All these earthly things will be added to you. When you put God first in your life, when you put God in first place in all of your life, when you actually seek his kingdom first, he'll make sure you have everything you need in order to do everything you should. And so Jesus listened to these questions, and they wanted to be on, this is number three in your notes, they wanted to be on time and place committee rather than a preparation committee. How many of you have ever been to a Baptist associational meeting? Some of you, I know, have been. Some of you, not many of you. Every year at the associational meeting of the Charleston Baptist Association, we hear a report from the Time and Place Committee. Are you familiar with that? And this committee has already met, and they say, okay, 
we recommend to our association that next year we have the meeting at this time in this place. And sometimes they also recommend the preacher who's going to preach the annual sermon. That's known as the Time and Place Committee. It happens at the South Carolina Baptist Convention, too, every year. The South Carolina Baptist Convention meets in November. Somebody makes a report, Time and Place Committee, we recommend this time and this place. This year it's going to be held in North Charleston. Did you all know that? Right up here at the Missionary Baptist Church up at the corner of Ashley Phosphate and Rivers Avenue. That's where our state convention is going to be this year. But somebody makes that report. Somebody makes a choice. And a lot of times we want to be on that committee and say, God, now's a good time for you to show up with the answer to my prayer. But instead, God puts us all on the preparation committee. It's not our job to know the times and the seasons. It's not our job to figure out when God is going to do what God is going to do. It's our job to be prepared day in and day out for whatever God does. I was uh, in church one Sunday a few years back, and a friend of mine came up to me, and I noticed he had this nice-looking lapel pen. I don't think I'd ever seen one like it before, but I looked at it, and it said, today would be a good day to fly. And it took me a second to realize what he was talking about. He was not talking about going on a trip by airplane. He was talking about going to heaven. You see, when Jesus comes back, those who are living on the earth at that time who are saved are going to be caught up with him in the clouds. Today would be a good day to fly, wouldn't it? And so our job is not to try to dictate to God times and seasons. Our job is to say, God, how can we be prepared by doing the things you told us to do, by being obedient to the call? And doing everything you ask of us individually and collectively as a church. Now, that's all preliminary. Let's get back down to the message in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice three things, and they're there for you in your sermon notes, three things about this verse that we could, uh, we could learn from. First of all, this ministry, this purpose of the church can only be achieved by a special power from God. And that power is known as the Holy Spirit, a person actually. Not just an inanimate or even an animate power, but a person in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the same thing that John promised when he baptized Jesus. I baptize you with water. One is coming after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And one of the gospel writers said, in the spirit and in fire. You know, when the Holy Spirit works in a person's life, it's almost like a burning fire. I don't know about you, but it doesn't take me long to examine a hot potato. Not at all. And when something's burning on me or burning in me, it doesn't take me long to get motivated and to get moving. And I think that's the reference to the spirit and fire and that baptism thing. But here's the deal. When the Holy Spirit came, and, and Lord willing, we'll talk about this more next Sunday. When the Holy Spirit came, there was no doubt that they could not carry on business as usual. Now, they had done some of that. Uh, we know that this group of 110 people who are waiting in the upper room between the Ascension and the day of Pentecost were Baptists. You know how we know? They had a vote. <laughs> they had a vote. And they voted on finding a person to replace Judas Iscariot. Right? Didn't they do that? And it wasn't really a Baptist vote, I should say, because they cast lots. 
And, and it wasn't a majority vote that won the day. It was who, whomever the lot fell on. And it was this man, Matthias. And so they were ordinary people. They were doing the best they knew how. One of their members had killed himself and he had defected from the group. And so it was time to elect somebody else. That's all they knew to do. And so they just waited. And they just prayed for 10 days in that room. I'm sure some of them took breaks. I'm sure somebody went out and got some food or somebody prepared some food. I'm sure some of them rested and took a nap. But finally, on that day when the Holy Spirit came, he endowed or endued that band of 120 people with a power that would change the entire world from that day to this day and on until Jesus comes back. Now, this isn't in your notes. I'm giving you this for free. I'm not going to charge any extra for this. What was that power? What was that thing? What, what happened on that occasion that enabled this church to do things that could not be done otherwise? It was the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction on the hearts of people who heard the gospel. In John chapter 6, Jesus makes this troubling statement. He says, nobody comes to the Father unless the Father first draws him to me. In John 14 and John 16, these two chapters, Jesus gives teaching about what the Holy Spirit will do. One of the things the Holy Spirit will do is he will help you to remember the things Jesus said. Therefore, those who wrote scriptures were able to remember some of those events with Jesus, especially in the four Gospels. But in John 16, we have this one verse that is curiously informative about the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. You need to understand this. You might need to write a note about this if you make notes. Now, how does that work? Well, it works like this. When you share the gospel, when you teach it, preach it, just tell somebody about your salvation experience, the Holy Spirit is at work in your telling of the message to convict a person. Now, what does it mean to convict? It, it means to make them feel guilty. To convict a person of their sinfulness. You see, until a person realizes he's a sinner, he doesn't see any need to be saved. Until a person recognizes the guilt of his own sin, he doesn't know he needs a Savior. He doesn't know he needs Christ. So the Holy Spirit's job is, first of all, to make that person aware that they're a guilty, sinful person. The second thing is righteousness, to convict or to convince the person of righteousness. And what does that mean? Well, righteousness is God's absolute standard. God's absolute standard. You know, when you go out to buy a car or maybe even to buy a house, you like to, you know, haggle a little bit with the person who's selling it. They offer you this used car and they want $20,000 for it. You don't want to pay that much. So you say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you sixteen. And finally, y'all keep talking back and forth and you wind up buying the car for eighteen. You meet somewhere in the middle. A lot of people think that salvation is like that with God, that you kind of bargain with God back and forth. But listen, God doesn't have a bargain. He has an absolute demand. 
And if you want to see heaven, if you want to see the righteousness of God eternally, you have to meet the righteous demand on earth. And you say, well, I can't be righteous. I've already sinned. I can't change my past. I can't even promise to go forward without sin. Listen, the righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. And it becomes an imputed righteousness. So the person is convinced that they're a sinner. They're convinced that righteousness is the norm and there's no way of heaven without righteousness. And then they're convinced, thirdly, of judgment. The fact that one day we'll all be judged. The lost will be judged at the white throne judgment for their degree of punishment for their sins. The saved will be at the judgment seat of Christ where we'll be rewarded for the good things we have done in Jesus' name. But all of us will face a judgment. And so the church is go out making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so no matter how good our programs are, no matter how good our ministries turn out to be, no matter how sharp and how good our ministers are, without the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is nothing more than a social club. The church has nothing to offer that any other social club in the community could offer if they wanted to. Now, I'm aware that there are many social clubs. I've been to a few as a guest. I've, I've never joined one. I'm not opposed to them. I'm just simply saying, if the church doesn't have the power of God on it, you're wasting your time being a part of the church. And so Jesus said, first of all, you're going to get a special power. And secondly, he said, you're going to be special martyrs. That's right. Let me give you some Greek. Y'all know any Greek? I used to know some Greek. But they moved out of town, and I haven't kept up with them since then. No. In the Greek language, the word that we translate into English as witness is the Greek word martyr. Martyr. And it is transliterated into our English word martyr. A martyr is a witness. Now, we generally in English think that a martyr is somebody who dies for the faith. Literally, a martyr is someone who's willing to give up their life for their faith in Christ. That's tough. But that's what Jesus said. You shall be my witnesses. You shall be my martyrs. You will be the people who find it so important to give this message to lost people that you'd be willing to lay down your own life for the sake of others knowing the message. And you know, through the history of Christianity, there have been thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds, maybe even millions of Christians who have been martyred for their faith. We don't see that much today, especially in the United States. Fortunately, we live at a time in history when it's not usually required of us to be a, a literal martyr for the faith, to be able to share the faith. But you still have to lay down yourself and humble yourself to be a witness to somebody you know who's lost, don't you? It takes a lot of courage to say to somebody, do you know the Lord? It takes a lot of courage to say to somebody, you know, if you died tonight, do you have the assurance that you'd go to heaven to be with the Lord? It takes a lot of putting yourself down and dying to yourself to say to somebody, if you stood at the pearly gates before St. Peter and he said, why should I let you in heaven? What would you tell him? What would be an appropriate answer to that question? There are so many, so many ways you can share a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you see, the point of it is when you have the power of the Holy Spirit who does the heavy lifting, you're just like a mouthpiece. You're just speaking a word, just the Holy Spirit who's empowering 
those words. And then notice the third thing in this text, verse 8, that Jesus tells them, is that the church will continue to grow outwardly. That's really important to note. In fact, many have pointed out how the description of where the disciples will be made is like concentric circles. You know, you draw a little circle, that's Jerusalem. You draw a bigger circle around the little circle, that's Judea. You draw a bigger circle around Judea, that's Samaria. Then you draw a really big circle, that's the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the world. It's interesting that the church always grows outward. Sometimes those of us in the church spend so much time trying to grow the church inward that we lose our focus on the outward. Now, I'm not saying this about you because you come to 11 o'clock, but it could be by those people come at 8.30. They get pretty concerned about having things their way, don't they? They want a special kind of music. They don't want this organ and piano. They want drums and guitars. Except I haven't seen drums yet. We need to get a set of drums or something, I guess. And, and they're the ones who, man, they don't want to wear ties and coats and suits. They want to wear jeans. It's pretty specific, specific, isn't it? Sometimes even those who worship at 11 o'clock are more concerned about being comfortable in church than about doing what it takes to reach lost people. I've never found a church member who said to me, Pastor, I don't want my church to grow. Here's what they usually say, and this is what I think lies behind it. We want our church to grow. We want our church to reach out to lost people. But in their minds, I think, but we don't want to change the way we do anything. We don't want to change anything because we like it just the way it is. It's comfortable that way. We had a man who came to a church I used to be pastor of. I won't mention where it is in Mount Pleasant, but some of you probably know. <laughs> and uh, he... Uh, he started coming when his wife died. She had been really sick, and, and they watched me on television every Sunday. And when she died, I ministered to them and uh, conducted the funeral, and, and they were nice people. And so he started coming to church every Sunday, every Sunday. And uh, we decided to make a change in our schedule. We used to have three worship services on Sunday morning. So from time to time, we might make a little adjustment here or there. And so we changed the timing of our 11 o'clock service to where it started at 1030 and he stopped coming. He just quit. I hadn't seen him for weeks. And I finally come across him. I said, man, I haven't seen you in church for a long time. What happened? Have you been sick? He said, no. I said, my daughter goes to church with me every Sunday. And now that we started church at 1030, I can't come anymore because she can't get here that early. So I just stay at home. <laughs> and I thought, what would it be like for him on the judgment day when God said to him, why did you quit going to church? And he says to God, well, God, they changed times on me. How could they do that? That was my service. How could they change times on me? You think that would fly with God? Let me tell you something, folks. We can get stuck in our forms of doing things and neglect reaching out to those who are lost. And neglect any concern over the dying, thinking to ourselves, it's more important for me to maintain my standards and my preferences and my delight than it is to do something that might attract somebody who's lost. I used to joke about churches having a, 
a little charismatic zeal. You know, sometimes in service, people raise their hands to worship. I kind of like that, Brian. If you get them doing that, it would be good. And I used to joke about how in the Baptist church, somebody gets happy in the Lord and start raising their hands, the usher's going to come show them to the bathroom. You know, because that's, that's what you do in school. And we need to go, you got to raise your hand. We get so concerned about things that don't really matter, thinking, well, they're going to they're gonna make a change that I don't like. And then we have some friends, and I don't know if they're in this church or not. They, they're in a church I used to pastor in another town close by, where they always brought, well, we didn't vote on that. We didn't vote on that. We got to vote on it. Well, who said? <laughs> now, people say, well, you know, the Baptist church is a democratic church. No, it isn't. No church of the New Testament is a democratic church. It is a God-directed church. And you see, we're supposed to vote in those areas where we have a vote, not on what we think is best, but what we believe the Holy Spirit's telling us to do. It's a big difference. I'm trying to give you a whole load here at one time in case you don't want me to come back next week. You understand what I'm saying? But listen, the church's growth is to be an outer growth, reaching out ever further to those who need God. And it goes beyond our choice of music. It goes beyond our style of dress. It goes beyond whether we have pews or chairs or meet in a beautiful worship center like this or meet in a gym or meet in a rented space somewhere. It has everything to do with the power of the Spirit, everything to do with the Holy Spirit's presence in reaching the hearts of those who are lost. I don't know how, you're, how much you're aware of this, but all over the Charleston region, there are many different new churches being started by young men who have God's call and God's blessing on them. I could take you to a number of them that I know personally, a number of them I don't know personally, but I know about them. And they are just bursting with growth. Now, why is that? Well, there are two reasons, in my opinion. One is that they're growing on the backs of some Baptists who are tired of doing everything like they've always done it and want to do something different. That, that's one way they grow, unfortunately. But there's another way they grow. They're willing to break the norm and to change the patterns and the styles to reach out to lost people however they find them. You see, most people who don't know Jesus are not interested in coming to our 11 o'clock service. They, they're just not interested. If it's possible, put yourself in the mindset of a person who's not saved, a person who's not a Christian. You didn't grow up in the church. You don't have any affinity for the church. And now here you are, and it's 2018, and somebody says, why don't you come go to church with me at 11 o'clock on Sunday? You say, why would I want to do that? You see, the natural person who's not saved is not automatically drawn to a service at 11 in a local Baptist church. What do we do? Well, first thing we do is pray a lot. I don't have a solution. I'm not trying to tell you what to change, if anything. In fact, maybe nothing needs to change, but I'm just simply saying there's a power of God that's got to be on it. If God's power is not on it, it's not going to work. But when God comes in power and we allow God to use us and we become his instruments and he begins to bring conviction on the people, the church will grow. I love the way Rick Warren says it. Rick Warren's pastor of the Saddleback Church out in California, a huge church, made a lot of enemies, but also he's led a lot of people to Christ. He says, I don't worry about church growth. He says, I worry about church health. He says, a healthy church will grow. When a church stops growing, it's an indication that something's wrong in the health of a church. You ever have any plants that didn't grow well? You know what I do with them? I cut them down. (laughs) 
I had an apple tree one time. We lived up in West Virginia, and I planted some apple trees in the backyard. We didn't have a very big yard, but I planted two or three apple trees. The first season came and went, and one of the trees didn't have any apples at all. And I said, well, next spring, maybe it'll bloom. Next spring, it didn't have any blossoms and no apples, and it didn't make the third year. I just cut it out. What do you think God does with a church that doesn't bear fruit? What do you think God will do with a person whose life is not fruit-bearing? You see, I know I'm off the subject. I know this is not in the text, but this is extra. Okay? And so Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where is that? At your house, your neighborhood, your school, your job, your friends. And in Judea, where is that? People you know occasionally or you meet sometimes here or there. And to Samaria, that's a little further out where you go once in a while. Maybe those people you sit beside at the Carolina game or the Clemson game, whichever game you go to. And to the uttermost parts of the earth. God may indeed call some of us to be witnesses overseas. Wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't it be exciting if God called some of our young men and some of our young women to go as career missionaries to the far corners of the world to share the gospel of Jesus? Well, it's time to land the plane, and I've got two things I want to say to you before I have the final prayer. First one is this. If you are part of the real church, that is, if you're truly born again, you've been saved, you know Christ lives in you, and you say, yes, if I die today, I'm going to heaven, then you are as responsible for fulfilling the commission as anybody else. As a pastor, I have no more responsibility than you have. As a so-called layperson, you have every much responsibility as I do. Our roles are different. You may never be called on to preach a sermon. You may never be called on to lead a church. But you have the same responsibility. You just work at it in different ways. You have the responsibility with me for the growth of the church. So here's the last thing, and this is a question. Are you doing your duty? Are you doing it, what God called you to do? I never did like to give people evaluations who served on the church staff with me. I'm sure I'm very biased about those things. But sometimes you had to write an evaluation for a staff member. And one of the worst things to do is when you have a staff member who's not doing what they've been charged to do. That's why we have job descriptions. There needs to be some accountability, and we don't like that in the church especially, but sometimes you have to do it. And so when you have a staff member and you say, you were supposed to do this, but you didn't do it, what, what gives? Well, really, if you have like a, a three-month or a four-month evaluation process, and the second time that comes up, you know what that means? They can no longer serve in the church staff. I mean, you're paying a person money, you're investing resources, you're, you're giving them opportunity, and they continue to do something unauthorized. They continue to fail to do what you ask them to do. You just have to let them go. That's hard. That's difficult. What do you think God looks at us like and says, well, you have this responsibility, you have this duty, you have this calling, but you're not doing it. What does he do? What does he say? Let's pray. Close your eyes with me, if you will.